Hi, I'm Sam and welcome to Medical Musings with Sam. Thank you so much for joining me again. I'm so grateful that you're listening in. I hope today's episode is one that's really informative in terms of getting to understand why it is that people need stomas. There's so many reasons, so many different reasons. And my story is probably a little unique in terms of why I have a permanent colostomy. So come along with me. It's not a short story. It's an interesting story. And I hope that, as I said, it gives you a bit of insight if you don't have a stoma, but you're interested in understanding more about them, or if you have one and you just want to feel less alone. I hope that that's exactly what my story does for you today. Grab a cuppa. You're definitely going to need one as we head down the road of how I came to be the permanent owner of a permanent colostomy. Since 2014, life has been overtaken by the story of my broken femur and the subsequent rare bone disease diagnosis. In many regards, my stoma has just become a normal part of my everyday life. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's how it should be. As life before it was very, well, what should we say, bow-focused. So it's not a short story. If you're going to be interested in listening, definitely push pause, go and make a cuppa or get your favourite drink, find a comfy chair, lie on your favourite couch, lie on the bed and settle back. Here we go. The story in my mind starts on the 1st of November 2011. It probably started before that in many regards, but this date was a significant life-changing date that's etched in my mind. In Australia, it was the day that stopped the nation. It was Melbourne Cup Day. It was also the day that stopped me in my tracks, literally. I was working full-time as an executive manager for a large bank, as I've said before, heading up a national contact centre. My dream role had an amazing team of leaders working with me. It was a 24-7 operation, 365 days a week. So it was busy. It was challenging for many reasons. But one of the biggest challenges was to create a culture where staff wanted to come to work, felt engaged, felt empowered, and as a result, wanted to provide an exceptional customer experience on every call. That was my entire focus. One of the major strategies in creating such a culture was to create a fun, community-minded environment in the workplace. Melbourne Cup Day was one of those events that we made the most of. Any excuse, really, but this was a good one to make a big deal of. It was an important day in Australia. Morning teas in every team, fashion on the fields competitions, virtual sales races, team leaders races around the contact centre. It was all happening. I woke on the day early as usual to get ready for work, well aware that this was an important day for my staff and it was going to be a good day, but a really busy day. Mornings were getting harder and harder, as you'll remember from my original story um, that I shared when I started the podcast, I have rheumatoid arthritis and that caused incredible morning pain, making the very act of showering and dressing difficult. I was still able to work though, uh, thanks to medication, but you know, it was a struggle. I was just very well supported by uh, my own bosses and by my team. So 
The medication itself for RA was causing side effects like nausea and debilitating fatigue, so that was difficult to manage on top of the pain from my joints. I felt particularly bad on this morning and I just put it down to being extra busy at work and my RA was definitely flaring. However, keeping with the Melbourne Cup theme, I was committed to dressing up. I bought a new dress, any excuse, and a matching fascinator hat. I hadn't worn super high heels for ages because of my RA, but I wanted to try and be the girl I used to be on this day. So I decided high heels were essential. I was judging the fashion on the fields competition later in the day, so I wanted to look the part. It was only one day. Surely I'd survive. I had an office at work and I knew I could kick my shoes off under the desk um, for when I needed that much needed relief. My husband drove me to work as he did every day. That luxury, luxury allowed me to work in the car on the way into the office and also helped me preserve all the strength I could for my working day without having to navigate through horrible peak hour traffic. I honestly don't think I could have continued working for as long as I did with my health situation deteriorating if it hadn't been for my husband driving me every day. He really is an amazing gift from above. So apart from the excitement of it being a special day at work, a day that had been in the planning for many, many weeks, it was still business as usual and I was busy reading and sending emails and making phone calls during the 35-minute car trip into the city. I was a little more tired than usual and I felt incredibly bloated. Look, I just put it down to Prendazone that I was taking to help manage the RA and that it graciously added a few extra kilos around my waist anyway. But something just didn't feel right. I got out of the car in the office car park and I very carefully made my way to the lift. I was already realising that the extra couple of centimetres on my heels were going to be an issue for my screaming feet. Still, I was determined and it was only for one day. I was very aware though that my stomach seemed to be growing and I was feeling swollen all over. The lift doors opened and I was grateful that no one was in there. I was hoping for a straight run up to my office on the 20th level. I was always happy to share a lift with any of my staff, but that morning I just wanted a few extra minutes to myself just before the show began. Thankfully, that's exactly what happened. I got out of the lift and made my way to my office, smiling and saying hello to whoever passed my way. I popped into my senior support leader's office, which was next to mine, to say good morning. She was such an amazing support to me in so many ways and the best 2IC I had ever worked with. We were soon joined by other members of my leadership team, all eager to talk about the day's plans. And as quite a few of my leaders were ladies, we, of course, were very keen to chat about the fashion on the field outfits we had chosen to wear for the day. My team knew about my health issues and were very much caretakers of my time and energy. Another amazing blessing. I was beginning to feel that bloating feeling intensify. And of course, my feet were well and truly aching already. So I excused myself and went to my own office to settle in and get on with some work. I wanted to do a tour of the contact centre to say hello to as many consultants as I could. That meant three levels and quite a bit of floor space to cover on each floor. Add in time standing and chatting and it was going to be a physical challenge for me but I knew it was important for staff morale. We had planned this activity would commence at 11am. I was going to be with a few of my leaders and the walkabout was also going to give us the opportunity to take photos of all the fashion on the fields competition participants so we could judge the winner later in the day. At 10am while sitting at my desk 
I suddenly felt the most intense abdominal pain I had experienced. I didn't know if I was going to be sick or if I had a stomach upset. I rushed to the ladies' room as fast as I could and went into a cubicle before anyone could see me, or so I thought. I couldn't vomit. I couldn't go to the toilet. I just had so much pain and bloating. Standing straight was even difficult. I opened the toilet door to return to my office, hoping that maybe sitting quietly and sipping water might make it all go away. As I opened the door, I was greeted by my support leader. She had seen me leave my office and just knew something wasn't right. She took one look at me and immediately said, I'm ringing Peter. You are going home. I didn't want to go home. This was a special day. I wanted to be a part of it. I was even wearing super high heels. I'd made such an effort. But mostly, I just didn't want to disappoint everyone. Once I was back in my office and my husband had been called to come and get me, we had a quick leader meeting and decided that a few of the leaders would run around and take pictures of all the fashion entries. Then we could quickly decide on a winner from each floor. They could then come to my office and we could have a photo taken together and I could be out of there by 11am. We did just that and when I looked back at those photos days later, I couldn't believe how pale and swollen all over I was. I was flanked either side by my leaders, literally supporting me to stand. It wasn't good. My husband arrived with a very worried look on his face. I gathered up my things, still thinking about work and what needed to be done for the rest of the week. Still talking business, which is so typical of me, with my support leader all the way to the car. I loved my job. I was passionate about the people, the customers, the company I worked for. I had no idea as I left the building on that day that I would never return to my office again. The 1st of November, 2011. While not my last day of working, was actually my last day in that building. Any work from then on until I medically retired in 2014 would be done from home. My life was changing faster than I realised. Once home, I rang the medical centre where my family doctor worked. I had a great relationship with the staff at this medical practice as I visited every Friday morning for my methotrexate injection. The low-dose chemotherapy drug was, up until that point, keeping my rheumatoid arthritis under control, enough to allow me to keep working. As soon as I called and explained my situation, I was told to come straight down and my GP would see me. What a relief. I felt terrible and the pain to my abdomen was unrelenting. My GPs that examined me and felt that I needed a CT scan straight away. So off we went to get that done. He suspected appendicitis but was not 100% sure of that. He knew I certainly never complained unless something was really wrong, so he was determined to find out exactly what was going on. The CT scan revealed that my bowel was completely blocked, severely constipated and possible appendicitis. I was referred to a colorectal surgeon, ASAP, who actually was to become a really good friend over the next two years. I had my appointment with the colorectal surgeon 
a few only a few days later so while I was in incredible pain and they could see that my bowel was was blocked it was being treated as um severe constipation cause unknown so I was able to be given some medication to provide some relief from the pain but um really it didn't work so I was really grateful that it was only that this colorectal surgeon um who's one of our top specialists was able to see me within basically 48 hours he took one look at the CT scan and he said straight up that my bowel was non-functioning. After listening to my history of a previous hysterectomy, my confession to having painful bowel movements for quite some time, although I was clearly in denial about that until now, he told me I needed to have a test called a defecography. I remember thinking that can't be that bad and I really just wanted to find out what was going on. So I enthusiastically booked the test appointment. He sent me away to do that with bucket loads of Movicol, which if anybody's had Movicol is not the nicest thing to have, but, you know, needs must. So what on earth is a defecography? I really had no idea, but it's a type of, and actually that was probably a good thing at the time. It's a type of medical x-ray imaging in which the mechanics of patient's bowels movement are visualised in real time using a fluoroscope. Now, that all sounds very technical, I know, but basically the anatomy and the function of both the anus and the rectum, which that area is called the anorectum, and that's kind of important to know in terms of my diagnosis. So that area anyway and the pelvic floor can be studied at various stages during the bowel movement. So that's what this test does. And yes, it does sound a bit yuck. And yes, it's not particularly pleasant. If you have to have one of these tests, <laughs> you really need to leave at home any inhibitions. It's full on. I arrived one hour before the test is requested and was asked to drink a cup of thick white glug. Anyway, I can describe it. I was allowed a hot cup of tea actually at the same time, which was really nice. And I'll tell you what, the staff at the radiology department, honestly, they were just beautiful. I felt so well cared for and they worked hard through the whole process to protect my dignity. The gluggy drink is what allows the x-ray to see the functionality of the bowel. So once you're called in for the defecography itself, then wait for it, a barium paste is injected into your rectum. This is actually the most uncomfortable part of the whole procedure. You have to lie on your side and, yeah, well, you can imagine. I was then quickly moved. So pretty much as soon as they've done that, you then have to get quickly moved to a portable toilet, which is just there. It's attached to the x-ray machine and then you have to try and pass the paste. I thought I was doing really well. And, and I must admit, look, they do cover you up beautifully. Um, yeah, so just, and there was only two people there. Um, they did everything all the time to make sure that I was okay. So um, I thought I was doing really well with passing this paste. And so I began to relax and think, oh, you know, maybe I just have a really bad case of constipation. How embarrassing is that? So... <laughs> And I thought, that'd be great. You know, heap of laxatives, I'll be fine, back to work. 
After the test, my husband and I went straight up to the colorectal surgeon's office, which was fantastic because we were able to discuss the findings there and then, no waiting, you know, for days to figure out what the results were going to be. Now, this surgeon doesn't hold back any punches and I must admit that works for me. I like straight shooters. I like to know what I'm dealing with. I have, however, told him on many occasions that his bedside manner really needs to be worked on. I'm a businesswoman and I wanted, you know, a plan and I wanted to know the facts. And he certainly delivered on that day in no uncertain terms. He has, however, probably brought other people to tears with his approach. So his diagnosis, his first comment was, you're stuffed. And yes, he did mean literally as my entire column was stuffed with, well, you know what. His second comment was, you're really stuffed. And then he began to explain why. I had the following issues. Firstly, I had a severely abnormal anorectal angle, which apparently was congenital and I had no idea. Probably I just thought whatever was happening with me is what was normal. But anyway, obviously not. Secondly, I had a rectocele. Now, this is the most common finding with this type of imaging. Almost always there's an anterior rectocele. And what that means is the, uh, the rectal wall is bulging forward into the vagina. Now, mine was large and one of the reasons why my bowel wasn't empty. So you can have a mild rectocele and, and probably get away with it. Mine was severe. But on top of that, I also had a rectal prolapse which was in which had internal intersusception so basically what that means is my rectum was telescoping into itself whenever i was trying to have a bowel movement which just made it impossible to accomplish so it was no wonder i had so much pain when i was trying to have a bowel movement but it was also uh, no wonder that even though i thought i was having them I wasn't having them enough and it was just getting backed up and backed up and backed up until I got to this particular situation. And then, of course, on top of that, I had this severe abnormal anorectal angle, which wasn't helping any of that because nothing was flowing correctly. So that pace that I thought that I was passing in that defecography, I hardly passed anything at all. So put all these three together, he was right. I was stuffed. So this started a surgical path that commenced on the 19th of December 2011. The first procedure was a rectopexy. So we were going conservatively at this stage. He felt confident that we should give it a go to see if we could fix this in a conservative um, surgical manner. So no mention at this point of a stoma. The first procedure was a laparoscopic rectopexy, which is one of the surgeries used to repair a rectal prolapse. And in this surgery, the rectum's restored to its original position in the pelvis so that it no longer prolapses. And it also fixes that um, rectocele as well. So I was home for Christmas, really hopeful that 2012 was going to be the start of some real improvement on the health front and I would be able to return to work early in the new year. That was my hope. Well, we had a not-so-merry Christmas that year. Life is never quite that simple, is it? It certainly isn't with me. It was Christmas Day and I felt a little off. I expected to feel that way. I just had surgery, so there's a fair bit of recovery ahead of me. 
We opened our presents and we were having a very quiet Christmas at home, just the two of us, given I had not long got out of hospital. I got up and I was going to have a shower when I felt like I needed to quickly go to the toilet. I was bleeding and it wasn't just a little bit of blood. It was Christmas Day and we really didn't know what else to do other than to go to the ER. Not exactly what we had planned for the most important and precious day of the year to us, but thankfully it was quiet and I was seen straight away. After being subjected to a pap smear, which is really quite ridiculous in hindsight, I had had a hysterectomy and really everybody agreed later that was not necessary, but still, um, they did do a CT scan and what was found was that I had a large pelvic hematoma um, as a result of the surgery and quite likely as a result of me being on prednisone, methotrexate and having rheumatoid arthritis, etc. The emergency doctor had consulted with an on-call colorectal surgeon and they felt that it would be okay to just let it bleed out. So they were hopeful that I might be able to do that at home. So they just gave me some oral antibiotics, but they actually told me to come back if the bleeding got worse. The next day, Boxing Day, I woke with a soaring temperature and the bleeding was most definitely heavier. So off we went again. This time, though, the ER doctor said my file had instructions to admit me the moment we returned. The red carpet was rolled out at the hospital and I was moved quickly into a lovely private room in the new wing of the hospital where I stayed until New Year's Eve on IV antibiotics. I not only had a hematoma, but I had a pelvic infection, all thanks, as I said, to my immune system being lowered by the rheumatoid arthritis medication. The complexities of an autoimmune disease really are never-ending. So, Again, they just wanted me to bleed out though. So it was, yeah, a really difficult week and not very pleasant, but we got there. So once I'd recovered from the hematoma complication, I began to actually enjoy a more normal relationship with my bowel. The return to functionality made me realise just how bad things had been for quite some time. The surgery though, the infection and my rheumatoid arthritis had left me feeling incredibly weak and I wasn't able to return to work like I'd hoped. Thanks to an amazing company and supportive boss, I was allowed to work from home and I managed the entire contact centre operations remotely for many, many months successfully. I had a great team of leaders on the ground who made that possible too and I am forever grateful. I just wasn't ready to let go just yet. I still held out hope for a full recovery. That hope started to diminish mid-June 2012 when I began to experience a lot of pain whenever I tried to have a bowel movement again. So much so that my husband would need to hold my hands so I could squeeze them to cope with the intensity of the pain. It was horrific. It was worse, honestly, than it had ever been. I could feel that hope of returning to a normal life running away and running away at high speed. My husband and I returned quickly to my colorectal surgeon. He was seeing me fairly regularly as my healing from the rectopexy surgery had been so slow. He and his staff were incredibly supportive and we were both devastated when I told him I didn't think my bowel was working again and something didn't feel right. He believed me. Unfortunately, though, the only way to confirm that was to have, yep, you guessed it, another defecography. I knew what to expect this time and that didn't make it any easier, I must admit. It actually made the prospect of a repeat test just plain awful. Still, I was a big girl and I knew I needed to suck it up and get on with it. 
The repeat defecography told us all what we really didn't want to hear. My rectum had prolapsed again internally. My rectocele had returned, although it was smaller this time, but my anorectal angle was even more severely abnormal than it was before. Surgery had failed. We were devastated. My first question was, so what do we do now? It was at this consultation that the word stoma was first raised. My surgeon said this was an option I needed to seriously consider and he also said that we could try repeating the rectopexy, this time with a perineum approach and internal mesh to have a better chance of everything holding in place. We went away to consider our options. I also have a great gynecologist oncologist who was um, excellent in his field and I knew that he dealt with prolapsed bowels and stomas. In fact, I remembered when he removed my ovaries in 2010 that he said to me after the surgery, my rectum was sitting at an odd angle and I may have issues with that in the future. Well, he was certainly right about that. Anyway, my husband and I decided to pay him a visit to get his opinion on our current situation. I took both defecography reports and films with me and explained what had been happening. We will never forget the look on his face. He was so upset at what he was looking at. He looked at the reports and then he looked up at us both and said, you are in excellent hands with your colorectal surgeon. He is treating you conservatively at this stage and keeping some things up his sleeve if that doesn't work. I am just so sorry this is happening to you. We left knowing a few things. We were in good hands. We did have a serious issue to deal with and we knew the keeping things up his sleeve comment was referring to a permanent colostomy. I felt sick. I wasn't ready for a colostomy. I just couldn't imagine it and I really didn't want to think about it. Normally, I would research the life out of something, but I couldn't even bring myself to do that at this stage. I think that was because I had the option of a repeat rectopexy and at this point I was pretty certain I wanted to go down that path. I needed to know I had tried every single avenue and then if I did have to have a stoma I would know I had no choice and I knew that would help me accept the outcome. So September 2012 I had my repeat rectopexy. This was more painful than the first one due to it being the perineum approach. Sitting was horrendous and my pain levels were through the roof. Once I recovered though, early in the new year, I did begin to enjoy a healthier bowel again. I had by this stage as a result of RA, bowel surgeries and prolonged recoveries stopped working and I was now on income projection. It was a hard decision to go down this path, but I knew it was necessary. It was fair to my work. It was fair to me. My body was failing on so many levels and in many regards the worst of it was still yet to come. I was still in touch with my leadership team who were really good friends and their support of me was fantastic. I still had a glimmer of hope that I would be able to return to work at some point although in my heart of hearts I was starting to say goodbye to that life. In February 2013 I had another mini crisis. I started having right-sided abdominal pain, which turned out to be an incisional hernia. It was from my hysterectomy in 2007, and thankfully, my colorectal surgeon, also being a general surgeon, was happy to book me in for more surgery. I was happy he could do it, as at least he knew my complex history, and that made the ordeal of yet another surgery a little easier to cope with. 
When my surgeon went in to fix it though, he couldn't believe how deep and tangled within the muscles the hernia was. He said he'd never seen anything like it. I, on the other hand, was not surprised at anything by this stage. Unfortunately, while I was in hospital post-surgery, I contracted Clostridium difficile infection. Now, that's an antibiotic-resistant bowel infection, which is uh, debilitating and needs to be treated by an infectious disease specialist. It's known as a superbug. I so could have done without that. I was in isolation in hospital and then at home for many months as a result. Just not fun at all. And it didn't really help at all with um, my bowel recovering from surgery. By mid-2013, I again started having issues with my bowel functionality. So back I went again to see my colorectal surgeon. This time, he spoke to me in more detail about the likelihood of needing a permanent colostomy. This was not, however, something he would do lightly and not something I would say yes to lightly. So together we worked out a plan of approach for next steps. It was clear and concise and would take a few months to pull together, but it was so important to helping us all arrive at an end point decision. First step. You're not going to believe this. Repeat defecography. Oh dear, here I go again. The second step was to have colonic transit studies. This was to make sure that there was nothing else going on um, that would continue to give me issues even if I did have a stoma. So for example, if my large intestine was non-functional, I may need an ileostomy which would bypass that. This is a stoma that's formed on the right-hand side of the abdomen and the small intestine contents empty into a drainable bag attached to a stoma. If I was functioning okay from a colon transit perspective, a stoma on the left-hand side called a colostomy would work for me. So this would basically just bypass my rectum, which in my case was the non-functioning part of my bowel. And then the third step he wanted me to do was have a colonoscopy and an endoscopy just to make sure all was well from a gastrointestinal perspective. So, you know, huge amount of things I had to go through before we were going to make a decision about whether I was going to have a stoma. While I was going through all of these tests and procedures, I was also making the biggest decision of my life. It had become evident that any prospect of returning to work was well and surely over. My medical team had been telling me for a while that they would support a total permanent disability claim through my superannuation. My employer was telling me they would support a claim and my husband was supporting me no matter what I decided. I know this is going to sound really stupid, but I just didn't know if I was deserving to apply for a total permanent disability claim. I still tended to underestimate how bad my health was. I felt so completely capable mentally. It just seemed to me life should just push through if I could. Given the overwhelming support from my doctors and the relief they conveyed when I told them I had decided it was time to stop work, I knew I had fought a good fight to hang in for as long as I could. And it was definitely time to close the working chapter of my life. My body and brain needed to work together and that obviously wasn't possible anymore. Many tears flowed. But once I submitted my claim, a sense of relief also came. 
We still, however, didn't know if the claim would be approved. I had completed the most comprehensive application possible, as only an executive manager can do. So all we could do now was trust and pray. Without that payout, we were going to be in severe financial trouble. But our faith was real and important to us. And we knew that God had never failed us in the past and we were confident he would take care of our future. Tests completed, we sat down with my colorectal surgeon yet again and reviewed all the results. All tests were normal except the defecography. <laughs> no surprise there. My rectum had again internally prolapsed. I now had a larger rectocele and also an enterocele, which is a small bowel protruding into the vaginal rectum space. My bowel would not function even with excessive laxatives without excruciating pain. I was also starting to have bowel incontinence as my body was trying to eliminate waste by watering it down and moving past the constipation. It was time. It was time. There was one more step before signing the stoma surgery authorization. I had to be assessed by a stoma nurse to make sure I really understood what I was about to agree to. Of course, now that I was in the headspace of knowing I needed the stoma, I began researching like never before. I even walked around the house with a lumpy bag of frozen peas down my pants so I could get an idea of what a full bag would look like with clothes on. I was pleasantly surprised to see that all my clothes looked fine and you couldn't tell there was anything unusual going on at all. By the time I saw the stoma nurse, she was blown away by my knowledge and was completely satisfied that I was ready. I was ready. I was so ready. I was over all the pain and the discomfort, the surgeries, the tests, the disappointments. I needed this and I was actually finally looking forward to it. Now that is not something I could have said 12 months prior. I felt really blessed to have had time to work through the process, to grieve, to research, to accept. Not everybody gets that. On November the 11th, 2013, my perfect little stoma was formed. My surgeon was determined to give me the most perfectly formed stoma possible and he achieved it. Ostomates are encouraged to give their stoma a name as it helps to personalise it. I thought that sounded a little odd originally. But being close to Christmas, my husband and I decided this little red stoma could have no better name than Rudolph. It created a sense of fun to name it Rudolph. My husband didn't bring me the flowers the night after surgery. He brought me a cute little Rudolph soft toy. That gift couldn't have been more perfect. I adapted really well to managing Rudolph on my own in hospital and at home with only a few minor hiccups, which Peter and I just laughed about. What else can you do? I was two weeks post-surgery and I was recovering quietly, contemplating all that had happened over the past two years. And wow, a lot had happened. I was exhausted and I needed to take time to take stock. So as I was sitting there quietly, just musing about everything, the phone rang. I was, as I said, really tired and I didn't really feel like talking to anyone. But Peter was downstairs and he couldn't make it to the phone. So I picked it up, gave my name. The female voice on the other end said, Hi Sam, I'm just ringing to find out where you would like your claim payout funds deposited. What? I cried and cried like I have never cried before. 
The poor girl on the other end of the phone kept saying, Are you okay? Are you okay? I eventually pulled myself together and I asked her to clarify, was she talking about my TPD claim, my total permanent disability claim? She confirmed she was. I was in shock. I expected to receive a letter or an email to say my claim had been approved, not an out-of-the-blue phone call asking me where I wanted the funds deposited. She laughed and she said the letter was on the way, but they just wanted me to get the funds ASAP and I would receive an email later that day, which I did. What timing, what relief, what a blessing. I'd only had my stoma for two weeks and was sitting there pondering what my future was going to look like. Our future was being taken care of. We could buy our own home. We were renting at that point. We had financial security. We had survived a difficult and tumultuous time. We could move forward with our new life, knowing that whatever twists and turns lay ahead, of which there would be many, we could continually place our faith and hope in God. He had once again provided for us beyond our wildest dreams and with perfect timing. There's a beautiful quote by Letty B. Cowman. This is the blessed life, not anxious to see far down the road, nor overly concerned about the next step, not eager to choose the path, nor weighted down with the heavy responsibilities of the future, but quietly following the shepherd one step at a time. It's really all you can do with chronic illness. Take one step at a time. This is the blessed life, despite it being chaotic and full of twists and turns. There is still much to celebrate, much to be joyful about, much to be thankful for. And I am very, very thankful for my stoma. Thanks for listening.